1925, Martin Coles Harmon purchased a slice of land in Britain and declared himself king. He issued private currency and postage stamps, marking the birth of micronations. Over the past 100 years, a society of individuals that wish to run their own nation has been developing. Flying under the radar, the kings, queens, and dictators of these tiny countries have been creating their own laws and protesting their home country. Some do so to undermine the government, others to avoid paying taxes. The question is posed, are micronations a threat? What are micronations? We sought out to one of the rare experts on micronations, Dr. Harry Hobbs, a senior lecturer and a human rights lawyer at the University of Technology, Sydney, who recently published a book, Micronations and the Search for Sovereignty. Here he is to help us define what is a micronation. Yeah, it's a, it's a good question, right? It's a really important question. Um, at least the way that uh, I like to think about it is that micronation is different from a recognised country. So it's different from a real country or a real state, right? Um, and it's... For that reason, it has no legitimacy. So it has no foundation in international law or domestic law for its existence. It has no legal basis for its existence, but it nonetheless claims to have uh, some existence, same, some right to exist. Micronations are not to be confused with microstates, such as Vatican City, Liechtenstein, and Luxembourg, which are tiny countries internationally recognized as independent nations. When talking about micronations, the term unrecognized is used relative to quote-unquote established and real countries. But what does it mean to be recognized, and what constitutes a real country? Though the term micronation has only been around for the last century or so, the concept has been crucial to every revolution in modern history. When the Confederacy seceded from the Union in 1860, they were declaring its sovereignty as a not-so-micronation. When Texas seceded from Mexico to form the Republic of Texas in 1836, they were doing the same. When Ireland seceded from United Kingdom, well, you get the idea. A key difference between these examples and today's micronations is the Confederacy, Texas, and Ireland were rebellions acting outside of the law, while micronations of today claim to be working in accordance with international law. But what, what would you do? You would, you would write a letter to the president. You'd say, you know, we're, we're seceding, we're creating a new country. Uh, and then you'd go about creating state symbols. So one of the things that everyone wants to do, they like to design their own flag, they compose their national anthem, they might uh, print passports or, or issue passports and print currency. And they do lots of things like this uh, to, get, to, go, to go forward. The micronations of today come in all shapes and sizes. Possibly the most famous micronation known to date is the Principality of Seatland, off the shore of the United Kingdom. Formerly a sea fort built during World War II, Sealand has since been occupied by Patrick Roy Bates and his family. The Principality has undergone invasions by mercenaries alongside many territorial disputes between different countries, yet the Sealand flag still flies. The more you look, the more micronations you find, especially today with international access to the internet and online chat groups. Creating a micronation and getting the word out is easier than ever. We had the pleasure of meeting Mr. Kevin Bogg, President of the Republic of Malaysia. Hi! 
Hi, President Ball speaking. Hi, pleasure to meet you over the phone, of course. Yeah. Of course, yes. Good to meet you, too. Just in general, if you can give us an overview of why and how you started your Micronation, like what inspired you to take that step and uh, or at least become part of this Micronation? Well, the Republic of Malaysia is, as mentioned, a Micronation. Uh, it, it is a tiny self-declared country uh, located fully within uh, the bounds of the United States and was originally founded on 26 May 1977. Back then it was known as the Grand Republic of Goldstein and uh, I was the Prime Minister, my friend James was the King. We were uh, we saw an old movie called The Mouse That Roared and uh, we were really struck by the imagination and creativity of that movie and so uh, we decided that we wanted to start our own country. Uh, kind of an extension of the idea of when a kid declares his bedroom to be independent so he doesn't have to pick up his socks when mom yells at him, uh, you know, that kind of thing. And uh, we just sort of stuck with it. Now, he moved on. James moved on to a different, uh, different projects, but I stayed with the idea. And uh, once I obtained property within Nevada uh, in 1998, that became the uh, home to the nation. I renamed it to Malasia, and we've been going strong ever since. And although micronations remain unrecognized by the powers of the world, they too have their own conflict and international communities. Uh, do you participate in this community? And if so, could you tell us a little bit uh, about it? Well, yes and no. I mean, uh, about 20, what, 22 years ago, we did, uh, we started the Micronational Olympics. Uh, that was in, you know, conjunction with the Sydney Games that they had in there in Australia at that time, 2000 and 2000. And, uh, we participated in that and a couple su subsequent Olympic Games and so forth. Uh, and then back in 2015, I was the one that actually, uh, invented, for lack of a better word, uh, Microcon, which is a gathering of micronations. Some micronations are formed out of creativity and the love of community, while others are often created by people in protest who feel their country's laws are unjust. In 2004, after the Australian government refused to recognize same-sex marriage, a small community of gay and lesbian activists set out on their boat, the Gay Flower, to claim uninhabited islands in the Coral Sea as the gay and lesbian kingdom of the Coral Sea Islands. And on June 14th, at the highest point in the Coral Sea, Emperor Daryl Parker Anderson raised the gay rainbow flag and claimed the islands of the Coral Sea in his name as the homeland for the gay and lesbian peoples of the world. When a country secedes from a nation in protest, a declaration of independence tends to follow. In the gay and lesbian kingdom of the Coral Seas Islands case, their declaration opened as such. Homosexual people have honestly endeavored everywhere to merge ourselves in the social life of surrounding communities and to be treated equally. We are not permitted to do so. In vain we are loyal patriots, our loyalty in some places running to extremes. In vain do we make the same sacrifices of life and property as our fellow citizens. In vain do we strive to increase the fame of our native land in science and art or her wealth by trade and commerce. In countries where we have lived for centuries, we are still cried down as strangers. In the world as it is now, for an indefinite period, I think we shall not be left in peace. The kingdom, existing as a symbol of protest for gay rights, was dissolved in late 2017 once Australia voted in favor of gay marriage. Kevin Bogg and Dale Parker Anderson may have decided to rule their own country because of a movie they saw as teenagers or because of a cause they believe in, but not all micronations begin so innocently. As Dr. Hobbs informed us. Another really famous one is the Republic of Minerva. 
Um, this was uh, set up by, or attempted to be set up by a Nevadan real estate uh, tycoon. Uh, he spent a long time trying to find a, a place in the middle of the ocean where he could create his own country and, and you know, have you know, no taxes, no social welfare, all these sorts of things. Uh, and so he found a, a coral atoll in between, well, about 400 miles from Tonga and Fiji, uh, and he tried to create a country there. And so he got sand ferried from uh, barges from Fiji, and he dumped the sand on the coral reef to bring it up above the water, and he sort of paid people to make rudimentary construction. And the Tonga, Tonga was watching this with you know, increasing alarm, saying, well, what on earth is this? We've got some weird American coming out of here to try and create a country on our doorstep. You know, we don't want this at all. This is really dangerous. Uh, and so they went to all the sort of, they spoke to their neighbours, they spoke to Australia, New Zealand, they spoke to the United States, they spoke to the UK. And so they said, you know, can we do something about this? And everyone said, look, you know, we're too busy, we don't really care. You know, not really, not really anything to do with us. Uh, and so Tonga was watching this increasing alarm, and eventually they sent the Navy there to sort of um, kick him off, basically, because they're worried about... Um, this new entity coming on onto their territory, basically, or near their territory. Here, do you think creating a micronation is a plausible way to avoid uh, laws? You might get away with it for a while, but ultimately you don't get away with it. And so a really good uh, famous example in Australia is the Principality of Hutt River. And this was set up in the 1970s, early 1970s. Um, there was a dispute for a wheat harvest. And the government said you can only um, sell you know, X amount of wheat. And the farmer said, well, I want to sell X times 10 of that wheat. Uh, and so he wrote to the governor, wrote to the prime minister, wrote to the politicians and said, hey, you know, can you please change this wheat quota harvest? You know, I want to sell a lot more wheat. And they all said, look, no, we can't really build it. You know, they didn't really reply to him and, and just build him. So he eventually said, well, you know, under my rights of the Magna Carta, I'm going to create my own country. And so he created his own principality, called it Hutt River. Uh, and for many years, he never paid tax. And so uh, eventually he became a bit of a tourist attraction. He was a really strong um media personality and so he'd go fly around Australia meeting politicians and pretending to be you know his own his own leader of his own kingdom uh, and he didn't pay tax. As Hobbs said the principality of Hutt River province did not pay tax for many years only very little foreign aid but after decades of getting away with it the principality got called in by the Australian tax office and eventually the Australian Supreme Court. The court analyzed what the principality had been doing for years and said, well, this is gobbledygook. The court was alarmed, to say the least, by the fact that calling a slab of land already belonging to Australia allowed this man to get away with tax evasion for so long. When learning about micronations, conflict, crime, and tax evasion are common reoccurrences. Multiple leaders and members of micronations have been sued sentenced and forced to pay fines for their attempts at undermining the law. But sometimes, instead of undermining the law, people simply want to be the law. Uh, well, I mean, we, uh, we do have a wide variety of laws. Uh, I'm a dictator, and so I can sort of pass whatever laws I want. And, uh, you know, for example, you know, I banned catfish and onions and light bulbs. And, and I mean, incandescent light bulbs, not actual, you know, uh, whatever's LEDs and so forth like that, uh, because they're bad for the environment. So, I mean, it kind of ruled by decree, uh, if you will. Of course, you know, we try to uh, more or less adhere to the U.S. laws. They're very large and very powerful, and we really don't want to make them uh, make them angry. Kevin Bogg calls himself a dictator of his own country that operates fully within the land of a democratic society. We invited Dr. Zachary Carabell a history and international relations PhD recipient and former teacher from Harvard University, to give his insights on what this could mean. 
Hello, Dr. Carabell. It's a pleasure to have you uh, join me to speak on Micronations. Thank you for having the conversation. We, um, we actually spoke to a man in Nevada who calls himself a dictator and rules over dozens of people. And all of those quote-unquote citizens have much more loyalty to him than the Nevadan gov- government. Do you think we should care about that? Do you think that has any sort of relevance or should stir some worry? I think as long as it's, it's uh, rare and the laws that they are insisting on following basically are insignificant enough, like dietary laws, like we're not going to eat X or we're not going to, um, we're all going to wear the same clothes or things like that. If it's just a small group of people, that doesn't really pose much of a threat. It's when, even when small groups of people, and we've had examples of this, there have been cults. Mm-hmm. Uh, which essentially have said this happened in the 1990s, and this it, this group led by this man David Koresh in Waco, Texas. You know they had several hundred people, but they also were stockpiling guns, and um, you know young girls were used as kind of the property of of the leaders of the cult. And eventually, mm-hmm. the government, the federal government, said, "Look, you can't. This isn't okay. You've got to. You're, you're mistreating the children, and you're you're stockpiling weapons." So it's one thing to say. Everybody will wear white clothes and and not eat uh, trout on Fridays. That we can probably live with because, frankly, who cares? And 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 that's more, no matter what you call it, more like any other set of individual choices that we think is a good idea in a democratic society. People should be able to be eccentric and quirky and follow the beat of their own drummer. It's when those rules start becoming uh, antagonistic or really problematic. And it's if the general principle of I get to decide everything. In a free society, we want a lot of individual autonomy, maybe not micronations, but you and I want to be able to decide, I don't want to eat lamb ever, mm. or I, I only want to wear gray and white and, and black clothing. We can live with that. It's, it's when the principle becomes no one has the right and no collective society has the right to tell me what is legal and I don't have to abide by collective laws. Also, really throws us back hundreds of years, right? The most mm. democratic societies emerge out of a belief that a king or a royalty who is the law is an unfair system. And what's ironic about these micronations, particularly in democratic societies, is that they essentially reject those hundreds of years of systems and say, I will be the law. For now, micronations have been drifting along the minds of those who have sought them out. But what will they look like progressing into the future? President Boggs shares with us his hopes and dreams for his micronation. Do you have any intentions of being recognized by other countries in the UN? We always have the desire. Uh, and occasionally uh, I'll reach out. I, the, the problem being that if another nation decides to recognize Malaysia, in effect, they're recognizing a tiny piece of the United States breaking off, and that could cause a, uh, like a diplomatic incident, and uh, nobody really wants that. That's... This is just one Micronation's plans out of the hundreds, maybe thousands, of other Micronation's ambitions. As the development of technology continues to thrive, Micronations have been introduced to a platform where they are able to find more participants and bring inspiration to many willing to start their own nation. Freelandia, for example, has been in the works to transfer their micronation into the metaverse. 
they have already hired architects to start creating the space. Other nations have pierced through the atmosphere as there are now two micronations in outer space. Hobbes questions what will define land ownership as micronations might commence creating micronations on international water, some even underwater. Back in the 60s, the Republic of Rose Island was created on a floating platform on the Atlantic just beyond Italian territorial waters. Yet after a couple of years, because they refused to pay taxes, the Italian government bombed and destroyed the floating country. International waters are lawless to an extent, and people claiming them as their own could be the cause of diplomatic disputes. I think the question that arises when talking about the worries of these micronations is how, would, how should a democratic government approach this situation to make sure everyone stays in line and it doesn't go too south or too extreme? I think government's best approach to these is as long as what a micronation's ruler or rulers are demanding of their subjects or citizens, depending on what they call each other, as long as those rules don't represent a threat to the larger society. And I think we have to define threat pretty specifically. Mm-hmm. Just disagreeing with the overall morality is not a threat. Some people will find it threatening. But I think in an open democratic society, you've got to allow people to behave and believe things that you find abhorrent and objectionable, and as long as they don't undermine the overall system. So on the whole, unless those rules and laws translate into behavior that is destructive and threatening, we probably should do what we do now, which is fine. Call yourself what you want. You want to call yourself the Grand Poobah of Poobahistan? More power to you. Call yourself what you want. Live how you want. Do what you want. But not in a way that starts to harm others or sufficiently undermine the basic rules of being a member of a society that you're a member of whether you want to be or not. We should let people play house if they want to play house. We should let people play house if they want to play house. Micronations may still be an abstract concept, though the potential they have is colossal. As they grow in popularity, the impact these miniature countries have on social norms will increase as well. Though a dictator of a not-so-impactful nation may not be harming anyone now, whilst they expand, would they really change their ways? Micronations seem to function on a separate set of standards from the rest of the world. In the realm of micronations, it is acceptable for leaders to do as they please. But even more so, the leaders can be anyone, no matter their qualifications. Social order rests either on a government that coerces its citizens, or one where citizens voluntarily abide by the rules via decree. A few oddballs declaring themselves micro-sovereign nations we can somewhat tolerate. But if citizens decide to opt out, that would generate serious issues and put both the rule of law and social cohesion at risk. Micronations have the potential to grow into a significant problem. But if leaders decide to put their power towards good, this could be the start of an advantageous new normal. Having a micronation kind of opens people's minds and to the world. Uh, really, I mean, you, you learn a little bit more about your world uh, when you learn about micronations and what people are doing, what, what makes countries tick, 
you know, uh, how they go and how they run and so forth like that. So I think there's a lot of advantages to learning about micronations. Uh, you know, take people out, outside of whatever, you know, world they're, they're living in and whatever they're thinking of and, uh, and, you know, move broad minds a, a little bit. So I think, yeah, I think that's a good thing.